Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the lead pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit myselfland.com. We're going to carry on in our uh, series here on the book of Luke, and we're in the month of prayer and fasting, so that will touch in this message uh, here at the end in a, in, a, in a very real way. But we're in our series on Luke, and as I keep telling people, if you're new here to this series or new here to this church, um, I'm not going through the entire book of Luke verse by verse by verse. It would take too long. I'm more skimming through it and taking kind of one thing out of a chapter and then moving to the next chapter. And I'm not covering everything, but giving us an overview of some of the main stuff in the book. And so today we're going to look at Luke chapter 8, and we're not going to touch the whole chapter. We're going to touch, though, uh, one of Jesus' most uh, famous parables. Jesus told lots of amazing uh, famous parables, and this one is the parable of the sower. I'm going to read it, and then we'll, we'll pray, and we'll get into it. And I pray that the Holy Spirit will really speak to us and, and change us and give us hope today. Uh, Luke chapter 8, verse 1. Uh, Soon after, Jesus went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. And I'm just going to skip to verse 4. And when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, and he's going to tell this famous, one of his famous parables here, a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And let's pray that Jesus would give us ears today as well to hear. Holy Spirit, would you open up our ears and would you give us ears to hear what you're saying to our church today and what you're saying to us as individuals. And I pray that you would give us hope. Lord, sometimes we feel hopeless as we go into a new year. Some here might feel hopeless. Is it even possible for me to change? And we look at how we are, and we look at some of our character flaws, and we look at some of our sin habits and bondages, and we feel sometimes hopeless. Lord Jesus, would you give us hope? There's always hope with you. And you are going to work some new and wonderful things in our church as a, as a body, but you're also going to work some new and wonderful things in each of us as, as individuals and in our families this year. And we are so looking forward to that. We are thanking you in advance. I pray that this message would be a step in that direction. In your precious name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. So this is a parable. You know, Jesus was a master uh, teacher. He was a master parable teller. Uh, again, I often say this, I, but I really mean it. I can hardly wait till he comes, till he comes back and we get to hear him uh, uh, teach and speak. It's going to be amazing. But what he was such a master of was he would take these parables from everyday life. Like just, I mean, now we read these parables 2,000 years later, and that part a little bit misses us because these parables are not from our everyday life. So we're living modern lives here in, 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 in the West, in North America, and so these aren't things that we see all the time. But you have to realize each of these parables, when Jesus is telling these parables, he's taking things from their everyday life, okay? When he talks about a sower sowing seed, this is something that all the, the whole crowd listening to him, they have seen this hundreds, if maybe in some cases thousands of times in their lives. They've seen this uh, all the time. And, and many of them have participated or helped with it or done it themselves. I even wonder, was Jesus' inspiration for this parable you know, I can just imagine him, he's standing there, there's all these crowds, uh, you know, gathering around him and crowding around him. And did, did he look off to a hill somewhere over there and see someone sowing seed? Um, as these people are, are listening to him, are they looking off into the hills in the distance behind him? And are they seeing someone right then sowing seed? I wonder if that was his inspiration. He was a master at just taking the everyday and then illustrating, you know, profound 
uh, uh, spiritual truths. And, and if he was walking today, just to emphasize the, the everydayness of this, if he was walking here today in Manitoba in 2017, first of all, he'd be walking around in a, in a parka um, in ski pants. But uh, if, he was, if he was, and that's maybe why he went to, to the Middle East, right, 2,000 years ago. But uh, if he was here today, the parables would all be totally different. Okay, if he was here in our midst today, he would tell parables about, you know, plugging your car in at night and getting a coffee from Timmy's and the disappointments of being a Bombers fan and all those sorts of things. <laughs> those are the kinds of parables he would tell. Okay, because he would take everyday stuff. That's what he's doing. Now, the question is, so, so why, did, why did Jesus teach in parables? Well, you can even see from a little bit what I'm talking here. Certainly, one of the reasons is because, first of all, they're so memorable. They're just memorable. Uh, they just, they, they say, I mean, even now, here we are 2,000 years later, and, and these parables don't really apply to our everyday lives anymore. But even, even so, think of how many parables uh, are known by our culture, even outside the church. I mean, think of the Good Samaritan. Our whole culture knows what a Good Samaritan is. How do they know that? You know, they're not even Christians. Many of them never go to church, but they know what a Good Samaritan is. They know the parable of the lost sheep. His parables are just incredibly memorable and simple and, and clear. So there's no question, you know, one of the reasons uh, he, he uh, told parables like that is because, uh, is because they were wonderful teaching tools. But you know what's interesting to me, and the reason I bring this up is uh, uh, when Jesus taught, he several times in the Gospels talked about why he spoke in parables, okay? And the reasons he gives for why he spoke in parables are nothing of what I just talked to you about. I mean, we look at the parables and we go, what a master teacher, how simple, how clear, how memorable. He's an amazing teacher. And yet when Jesus says and tells, and he does this several times in the Gospels, when he talks about why he speaks in parables, he never once gives any of those reasons that he was doing it to make things more clear, more simple, or more memorable. In fact, the reason he gives is actually almost feels like it's opposite to that. And we see that in this passage. If we go to, to verse 9 here in Luke, chapter, in Luke chapter 8, Jesus is actually going to talk to his disciples about why he teaches parables. And it's a completely different reason than we would think he would have for teaching in parables. Verse 9, And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. So this is like, Actually, the exact opposite of why, you know, for teachers like me, and maybe you're here today, and part of your job is teaching or speaking or, you know, public speaking or whatever, um, you know, when we teachers want to speak something, our goal is we want as many people as possible to understand it, and actually more than that, as often underneath, we want as many people as possible to like it, right? We want people all to like it, and we want people all to understand it. Jesus cared nothing for that kind of thing, Okay? Jesus cared nothing. How much do people like what I'm saying? In fact, I could, you know, John chapter 6. I'm not going to go there. It would take us longer. But if I just quickly breeze through it now that I've said it. You know, John chapter 6. I love that chapter. John chapter 6, Jesus feeds, you know, a bunch of thousands of people with, with a few loaves and, and fishes. And after that, the crowds just flocked him. And of course, we human beings, crowds are flocking. This is success, right? We've made it. We are a success. Everybody likes us. Jesus looks at it and goes, uh, what am I going to do? What I'm going to do? And he tells them kind of a parable. In this case, more of a metaphor maybe than a parable. But he tells them a metaphor. He says, if you want to follow me, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they all go, ooh. And if I had been spoken that and I saw everybody going, ooh, I'd be like, okay, okay, let me dumb that down just a little bit. That was a metaphor. I'm not totally serious. Jesus doesn't do that at all. He says, are you offended by that? And then he repeats it, not once, but at least a couple of times, Okay. <laughs> And after that, it says, they all leave except for 12. 
Jesus cared nothing about making everybody happy or what they liked, okay? And when he taught a parable, certainly there's no question, part of the reason he used parables is because he was a great teacher, but when he gives his primary motives for why he used parables, the reason was not so that everybody would like it and remember it and and understand it better. In fact, he says, the reason I speak in parables is because there's some people here, I don't want them to understand what I'm saying. Some of them are going to hear, and they're not going to be able to understand. Some of them are going to see, and they're not going to be able to perceive. And those underlined uh, lines there, those underlined passages, actually he's quoting uh, from a famous passage in Isaiah 6, and I want to go there. I always like looking at the Old Testament links when Jesus is, is drawing on the Old Testament. He's actually quoting there. Uh, Isaiah 6 is a famous passage. It's, uh, we sing songs about it sometimes. It's the famous passage where Isaiah gets caught up into the throne room of God and, you know, holy, holy, holy. And then Isaiah falls down and he says, woe is me from a man of unclean lips. Very famous passage. And the angel touches him with a, with a hot coal. And then right after that, this is the conversation that happens, okay? And Jesus is quoting from this passage, okay? Verse eight, and I, this is the prophet Isaiah speaking, heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. And he said, go and say to this people, and this is what Jesus was quoting, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. This is a judgment passage. This is a judgment passage. God is saying to the Israelites, he's saying, I've, I've shown you what you need to do. There's a disaster coming. There's a disaster coming right around the corner and I've shown you what to do in order for you to avert the disaster, for you to repent and come back to me and be blessed and be safe and all sorts of things. I've shown you what to do, but you cannot understand it and you cannot understand the, the, the warning and you cannot perceive it, okay? And, and just so you know a little bit about the language there, it almost looks like God is saying through Isaiah that he's making the people not understand it. That's just the way the prophets spoke. Okay, and, and just to give you a little aside here so you understand when you're reading the Old Testament, they would, the prophets would sometimes speak as if they were making something happen when all they were doing was foretelling something. Okay? It's just prophetic speak. Sometimes when they were saying, this is actually going to happen, they would speak as if they were making it happen. For example, you know, Jeremiah 1, the calling of the prophet Jeremiah. Uh, God says through Jeremiah, I've given you this day to you know, power over nations, to overthrow and destroy nations and uproot kingdoms. Well, Jeremiah never had the power to uproot kingdoms. He never had the power to, to make nations be overthrown and kings overthrown. But what he did do was prophesy that those things would happen, and they did happen, okay? So just so you know, in Isaiah 6, this judgment is not that God is making them not understand. God's giving them a warning, and the prophecy is you won't understand, you won't listen to it because your heart's bad, okay? So imagine it a little bit like this. I like to try and use illustrations. They're not nearly as good as Jesus's. In fact, they always come out wacky. I'm really amazed at how he can do parables when you try to make your own. But um, imagine you're driving in a mountain. So don't compare me to Jesus, all right? That'd be, that'd be good for me. Um, but uh, uh, imagine you're driving in the mountains, okay? So you're obviously uh, far from here, okay? Which is a good place to be in January. But so you're driving in the mountains and, uh, you know, hairpin turns. It's lovely. You're in the mountains. It's beautiful. Um, but you, what you don't know is around this next corner, you know, some stuff happened. I won't get into what, I don't even know what, but the road just goes off a cliff, okay? It's not a good road. So you're driving there, and you, but you don't know. So you're just enjoying the drive. You don't know that you're going to go around this next corner, you're going to go right off a cliff, and it's going to be a disaster. Now, fortunately, you drive a real smart car, okay? And this car is, is warning you. There's like red letters coming across the, the windshield, and it's warning you, disaster up ahead, uh, you're going to go off, you know, you pull over, stop before you have a, have a terrible disaster, and there's even a voice audio warning coming. 
uh, stop, pull over, uh, there's disaster ahead, you don't want to go around this corner, okay? So imagine that, okay? And what you have to understand here, what Isaiah is saying here, this is, really, this is a really important point, it's going to come into how God communicates with us and how we sometimes misunderstand. What Isaiah is saying in this prophecy is not that the people are blindfolded and that they have plugs in their ears so they can't see the warning or hear it. Because here's the thing, if you're driving in the mountains and you have a blindfold on, you know you're in trouble. Isn't that true? I mean, if you're on the Trans-Canada, you know you can probably get away with it for four or five minutes, okay? <laughs> as long as you're not too close to Deacon's Corner. There's not, many, you know, there's not many turns there, right? But if you're in the mountains and you got a blindfold on, right, and you got plugs in your ears, you know you're in trouble. So what Isaiah is saying here is not that you have a blindfold on and you can't see the warning, because if you had a blindfold on, you would know you were in trouble and you would take it off. What Isaiah is saying here is actually a, a much, in, in many ways, more sobering and scary uh, judgment, what he's given to the people here, is he's saying, you don't even know you're blindfolded. If you were blindfolded, you would take the blindfold off because you know, know something wrong. What you have is you've put up like a filter. You've done it yourselves through your hard hearts. You've put a filter over your eyes and a filter over your ears so that you think you can see and you think you can hear, and you're looking around out of the car as if you're seeing just fine, but that filter knocks out the red lettering. You can't see the red lettering on the windshield. You feel like you're seeing out of the car just fine. You feel like you're hearing just fine, but it makes you think that that warning is actually just a peaceful thing, a blessing, but actually it's a warning, and you can't see the disaster ahead. This is called self-deception. It's not that you just can't hear God. It's that you don't know you can't hear God. That's what Isaiah is warning the people here. Not just, you can't hear God and there's a big warning to come, because then they'd go, oh shoot, we're not hearing, something's wrong, take off the blindfold, we got to repent, and they would get their lives right with God again. But in this case, what's happening is, see, the sign of self-deception is you don't know that you're deceived, right? That's what deception is. If you knew you were deceived, you wouldn't be deceived. You'd take the blindfold off, you'd repent. The sign of self-deception is you feel at peace. You think everything's fine. You look out, the, out the, the window of your car and you think you're seeing fine and you think you're hearing fine, but you're not hearing and you're not seeing and right around the corner is disaster. Self-deception means I feel like everything's okay and disaster is right around the corner. That's what Isaiah's warning the people of Israel about. That's what Jesus is quoting from in a parable. And by the way, self-deception continues to happen today in all kinds of many different thousands of ways. Isn't that true? It's not that, you know, it's not the people who are blindfolded and then they suddenly have a realization, I need to repent because I can't see where I'm going. It's a disaster. It's the people who think everything's okay when it's not. You know, I've heard people, and I, I almost hesitate to use examples sometimes, but some of these examples are good, but there's a thousand different ways this can happen. But I've heard people say things like, God's telling me to get a divorce. And of course, I know, you know, time out before we lay guilt on people who shouldn't have guilt on them. I know that there's, there's extreme situations. There are extreme situations. You know, where for the safety of the kids or the safety of the spouse for various reasons that are, you know, extreme reasons. And some Christians are so naive, they don't think those kinds of situations exist, and they do exist. And I know that there are situations where that has to happen, and divorce has to happen in, in situations like that. But what I'm talking about is where there's nothing like that, and someone just, they've kind of fallen out of love, and uh, now they've fallen in love with someone else, and they just feel peace. They just feel peace about, I can be dating someone while I'm still married. And they feel peace about that. Well, I got peace. I read this verse, and I feel peace. I, I heard in prayer that peace. You know what that is? That is, you don't even know you're not seeing. You can't see the disaster around the corner, but you feel like everything's okay. You don't think you're blindfolded. You think everything's okay. There's a filter over your eyes. There's a filter over your ears. You think you can hear, but you can't understand. You think you can see, but you can't perceive. And that's what God is warning about, and that's what Jesus is warning about here in the parables. If we go back to Luke chapter 8, and he says, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now we can understand a little bit more of why Jesus was speaking in parables. 
it's not so much because someone might read that and they might think, why would Jesus hide truth from people? Like, that's not fair. Jesus should tell, tell things in such a way that it's clear for everybody. It's not that, so now you can see, it's actually not so much that Jesus is hiding things from people. The point of the parables is that the parables expose those who have good hearts and those who have bad hearts. It's not that Jesus is hiding things. Those parables were simple, clear, beautiful, and memorable. And Jesus knew that anyone with a good heart who wanted to receive what he was saying, when they would hear them, they would just make sense and they would be able to follow him. So the parables didn't hide anything, but anyone with a, with a, with a false heart, with a filter over their eyes and ears, would not be able to receive what the parables were saying. It's not the parables' fault. It's not what Jesus is doing. It's, an ex, it's exposing what's actually in the heart. It's exposing what's in the heart. Now, there's a deep spiritual truth here that I want to hit, and I want to hit it from the good side. I want to hit it from the positive side. This is so important. It has to do with the way God communicates to us. If you genuinely want to do right, so you say, what does it mean to have a good heart? But having a good heart doesn't mean you're perfect. Nobody's perfect. I mean, Jesus is perfect, but none of the rest of us is anywhere close to perfect, and we won't be until, until we die and get resurrected. So when I talk about a good heart, I'm not talking about you don't have problems, you never sin, you never you know, do, do stupid stuff like that. We all do that. We're all weak. We all get tempted. We all fall. When I talk about a good heart, what I mean by good heart is that deep down at your core, you actually want. You don't always succeed, and you fall many times, but you want to do what God wants you to do. You want to do right. If you have a good heart, let me tell you this. If you genuinely want to do right and are seeking to obey God, you can rest assured that if you need to hear God's voice, you will. Can I just say that again? If you genuinely want to do right and are seeking to obey God, you can rest assured, okay, that if you need to hear God's voice, you will, because it's about the state of your heart. That's what we see from the parables. If you have a good heart, it's going to make sense. And if you don't, you're not going to be able to understand it. That's how, God, that's how God's communication works. The reason I feel I need to say this is, I think sometimes people get the mistaken impression that hearing God or getting guidance from God, and this is so important because now it's prayer and fasting month. And I don't know about you, but I got, I got three things. I, I wrote them out again this morning in my journal, and I actually have a bunch of other things I'm praying about, but I got three things where I'm really seeking guidance from God. It's like, Lord, I, I really need to hear from you. And I know many of you are here today, and you have things where you need to hear from God. You need guidance from God. Sometimes we reduce hearing God to a technique. And it's like, maybe I'm not doing it right. Maybe that's why God's not speaking to me. I'm not doing it right. So maybe I'll try this or I'll try that. And we're trying different techniques. Can I just tell you something here today? Hearing God is not about a technique. Yes, there are wonderful practices we do that are wonderful. And they're conducive, you know, uh, conversational prayer and listening prayer and journaling and all these sorts of things. These are wonderful practices where we can build fellowship with with the Lord and, and hear his voice. But when you need guidance from God, let me just tell you something. It's not about a technique. If it was about a technique, then we would find a bunch of how-to steps in here. We'd find when you need guidance from God, here's the three steps you take. Or when you need to hear something from God, here's the formula of five points you need to do. But in here, you'll never find a, a formula, yet hearing God is throughout all these pages. It's not a formula. It's not a three-step uh, program. Hearing God is about the heart. If your heart is good, you'll get what he's saying. If your heart is bad, you won't be able to perceive it. You'll misunderstand it. You'll actually be led astray even when you think God is speaking to you. And this is the teaching of all of scripture. I can show you many, many passages and many were coming to my mind the last couple of days, but I'll just show you a couple. I'm gonna go back to Proverbs chapter three. We memorized that one together as a church in fall. Proverbs chapter three, verses five to six. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, right? You can trust. First of all, look at that word, trust. You can trust. You don't have to be afraid you're gonna miss it. 
Trust in the Lord with all your heart in all things, right? And do not lean on your own understanding, right? In all your ways, acknowledge him. And now look at that. And he will make straight your paths. Do you see that will there? That's a guarantee. That's an ironclad guarantee. You can trust in the Lord. No matter how bad your technique is, no matter how little experience you have hearing God, it doesn't matter who you are. You can absolutely trust God that if you need guidance from him, if you need guidance from him and you are seeking him, he absolutely will make straight your paths. There's only one if, right? And the if is, in all your ways, acknowledge him. Now, what does it mean to acknowledge him? That's just a fancy way of saying what I was saying before about having a good heart. In all your ways, acknowledge him means that in all your ways, in the things that you're seeking him in, it just means I'm going to acknowledge him. That means I just want to do what he wants me to do. If that's your core, you're weak, you fail, same with me. You make mistakes, you do stupid things, you sin, you screw up. Yes, 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 yes. You repent, you confess, all those sorts of things. It's not about that. But at my core, as I come to you for guidance in these issues, and maybe you have things, Lord, what about my kid? What am I going to do with this situation with my kids? What am I going to do in this situation with my job? What am I going to do in this situation with my, you fill in the blank. Whatever year is you're seeking God for in prayer and fasting month. If you will go to him and you will say, I want guidance from you and in this situation, all I really want, I just want to do the right thing. I want to do what you want me to do guaranteed he will make straight your paths. He will speak to you. If that's your heart, you can trust him. You can absolutely trust him. Which is why when I'm making a big decision, I want to just show you a little practical here because I'll just show you kind of what I do. And even what I'm doing this month, you know, when I seek God about these decisions, I'll show you a little bit of what I do. I'm not worrying about my technique. I'm not wringing my hands going, maybe God's not speaking to me because I'm not doing it right. I never worry about that. I don't worry about the technique. I worry about my heart. So what I do is I go to God and I say, Lord, I need to hear from you. I begin to listen. I begin to journal. I begin, you know, all those things. We, and, and we can just get quiet with the Lord. But it's not the how-to. Then what I do, so I ask him, and you know what I find usually with big decisions? I've never once in my life had a big decision where I said, okay, Lord, show me what to do. And that second, boom, he showed me what to do. And I've had some small ones like that where he gave me some stuff. But when it comes to big life decisions, he's never spoken to me that quickly, Okay. For me, it's always a process. And the reason it's a process is, first of all, God is relational. And second of all, God wants to do a work on my heart. Because it's not a how-to. Getting guidance from is not a how-to. It's about when my heart's in the right place, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean out on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. He is going to guide me if I get my heart in the right place. So what I do when I have big questions for God is I start to go to him and I start to make sure my heart's in the right place because I know as I go through this process with him in prayer, he's going to guide me. Now, I know some of you are, 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 you have a certain personality where you're going to now turn these questions into a rule, and you're always going to do this into a formula. This is not meant to be a formula. I don't, I don't go through this list all the time. What I'm talking about is these are the kinds of questions I ask God when I need guidance. So the kinds of questions I ask God are, what are my motives? So when I'm searching about a decision, I'll, first I'll take to my motives. What are my motives in this? Because if my motives are wrong, remember what Isaiah said to the people of Israel. If your hearts don't want to do right, you're not going to be able to understand. You're not going to be able to perceive. In fact, sometimes when your motives are wrong, you're going to end up thinking you hear God say what you want him to say, and you're going to be led astray. So my first thing is, Lord, I just want to know. I want to help me to see what my motives are. I start to look, what are my motives, okay? Am I acting out of fear? One of the things God's been speaking to me about recently is don't make decisions out of fear. You make bad decisions when you make decisions out of fear. Make decisions out of trusting the Lord and what he's saying. So am I, make it, am, I, am I wanting to make a decision because I'm afraid? Am I acting out of selfishness or anger or pride or lust or any of those kinds of 
fleshly passions, if, I, if, if I'm making a decision of that, let him expose that. Say, Lord, what am I making? Because even as you do this work, he's going to start to make it clear what his will is. Search your heart. It's not a technique. Because once you get your heart in the right spot, he's going to guide you. He's going to make straight your paths. Okay? I'll ask myself, often I'll ask myself with these things, what's the right thing to do? What's the right thing to do? And then another big question I ask is, are my hands open? You know, when you go to God with a big decision, you got option A, B, C, D, E, whatever it is. How many options do you have? Or just A and B, whatever it is. You go to him and you say to, to the Lord, and this is so key, if you can get to this place, once you're in this place, you are guaranteed to hear from God in his timing. But when you get to this place where you can open up your hands and you can actually say, Lord, and you look, maybe I'm holding on in a sinful way to one of these options because I want it for wrong motives. When you can get to God and you can actually hold your hands open and you can literally say of all your options, you can say, Lord, I actually just want what you want. When you get to that place, you are now in the place to hear God. Now you're sitting here and going, I got to that place yesterday and he hasn't spoken to me yet. If he hasn't spoken to you yet and you're in that place, it means he doesn't want you to give the answer yet and you're supposed to keep what? Waiting. All you can do is get your heart in the right place. He guarantees... Trust in the Lord with all your heart. The whole thing, everything that's in there, you can trust him. That if you ignore, if you open your hand and say, I'm good with whatever you want, I just want to do what you want me to do. If you get in that place, he is going to guide you. If he hasn't guided you yet, it's because it's not the right time. Just keep waiting. He's going to guide you. And sometimes it's just in the nick of time, but it will be in time. It'll always be in the right time. Of course, this brings up one other thing we have to be willing, and that is, are you willing to hear whatever God wants to say. Are you willing to wait? Because sometimes what he's going to say is, I want you to wait. And you're thinking, I got to do this or this, and I have, and he says, actually, I want you just to stay right where you are and wait. Are you willing to hear that? If you're willing to hear that and you're willing to obey, you're guaranteed he's going to guide you. He's going to lead you. You know how I know this? It's all over scripture. Let's look at James chapter one. James chapter one, verse five. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who what? Gives generously to who? Oh, so now look specifically what you're, what, what, what you're asking for here. He's specifically saying wisdom. So someone needs guidance. You're here today and you need guidance. It's prayer and fasting month. You got some big things. I need help. I need direction. If any of you lacks wisdom, specifically, this is to you. Let him ask God who gives generously to all, not just spiritual people, not just, you know, pastors, not just people who, you know, this or that or that, pray a certain amount of hours a day or whatever. If you need wisdom, you can ask God, and he gives generously to all. Anyone who asks him, now I love the next line, without reproach. Without reproach. Isn't that cool? You say, what some of you are going, I, I never thought about that. What, what's the big deal about without reproach? If you're a parent, isn't it true that sometimes your kids ask you for stuff you don't want to give them, and then you give in, you give it to them, but you give it to them with reproach. Isn't that true? They ask, and they ask, and they ask, and fine, you can have the juice. Here you go. And you give it to them, but it's not generous, and it's not without reproach, Right? Or they beg you and you've already prayed for three of them and then the fourth one is begging, can you pray for me? Can you pray for me? Ah, fine. And you roll your eyes and you go and you pray for them, right? That doesn't happen to me. I'm a pastor. I always like to pray for my kids before bed. But anyway, I just, that was an illustration I heard from a friend of mine in the church. But anyway, um, <laughs> right? But you give with reproach. So they ask you for something. You're tired. You don't really want to give it to them. You give them with reproach. You know what I love? God never gives wisdom like that. Doesn't matter how small or how big. He doesn't look at you and go, You've been a Christian for how many years and you still need wisdom about that? Fine, here's some wisdom. He never does that. Never. 
You go to him, it doesn't matter how small, it doesn't matter how big. If any of you needs wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. He is happy. If you go to him and you want to know, Lord, guide me how to do this with my kids or how to get through this situation or what to do about this. If you go to him and you're willing to open up your hands and your deepest desire is just, I want to do the right thing that God wants me to do. And he says, I am glad to give you wisdom. Now, like in Proverbs 3, there's only one if. There's only one but. Let's go to the next uh, verse. Here's the but. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now you all look at that and you go, I wish you could have just left that at verse 5 right? Because this was such an amazing promise, but now the whole promise got flushed down the toilet because what if I don't have faith? Now I can't trust in a promise. What if I doubt, right? And so we look at this and we go, well, verse six cancels out verse five because isn't it true that most of the time when we need guidance, we're afraid? Like most of the time, this is just the way us human beings work. Most of the time when we think everything is good, we're not asking God for guidance, and that's, maybe that's another whole message. That, that's when, maybe we, when we should be asked for guidance, but truth of the matter is, Usually we ask for guidance when we're afraid. So now we look at this verse and we go, what's the deal with that? Because if I'm feeling afraid, if I'm not, because we think this verse is about feelings. We think when he talks about you got to pray with faith, what we're talking about is I can go to God in, you know, and, and have a promise that he's going to guide me. When I go, bah, 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 oh, I feel today real good that he is going to speak to me. And if I feel that way, I can pray to him and he will. That's not what this is talking about. It's not talking about a feeling of faith. It's not talking about a feeling of doubt. Most of the time when we go to God in prayer, we are having feelings of doubt. That's sometimes the motivation that he uses to get us into prayer. So what is this talking about? You want to know what faith is? It's what I've been talking about this whole message. Faith is when you get your heart to the place where you say, Lord, I just want to do what you want me to do. That's what the Bible calls faith. When you get your heart in a place, Lord, I want to do right. I want to please you. When you are in that place, it doesn't matter how afraid you are. You are in a place of faith, and God says, absolutely, I will guide you. And doubt there, when he talks about doubt there, he's not talking about feelings of fear, and I'm scared, and this situation is so big, and I need God. God loves it when we come to him afraid like that. And he says, I mean, he doesn't want us to stay afraid, but that's what we're supposed to do. That's what, when our kids are afraid, we want them to come to us. We want to comfort them. We want to be there for them. When he's talking about doubt there, doubt is the person who who prays once, prays for a week. I tried to get guidance for a week, and that didn't work. So now I'm on my own. I'm just going to make a decision. I'll just figure it out on my own. That's doubt. That person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man and stable in all, he, in all his ways. It's not talking about a feeling of doubt. It's talking about a person who's not committed to just wait on the Lord and trust him that he's actually going to come through. Faith is, I'm going to whether it takes a week, whether it takes a month, whether it takes a year, I'm going to trust in the Lord with all my heart because I know that he's going to make my path straight. I'm in a place, Lord, I just want to do right. And if I'm there in the right time and I keep seeking him, he is going to guide me. He is going to speak to me. Amen? That's a really good promise if you ask me. Well, if we go back to Luke chapter 8 now in the parable of the soils, I want to finish this message there. This is a really cool thing about the parable of the, the different kinds of soils and the sower. We see again that bearing fruit in the Christian life and hearing God's voice is not a formula. Jesus does not give us a formula. When he talks about this, he gives us four kinds of hearts. So, and so we see this again. You want to bear fruit in the Christian life, it's not a formula. It's not do this, 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 this. If you have the right heart, you're going to hear God and you're going to bear fruit. If you have the wrong heart, you're not going to be able to hear God. So the key is get your heart right. 
And there's one particular soil that doesn't hear God very well that I want to focus on, but we'll, go, we'll just briefly go through the first two and then we'll get to the third one. It's the thorny soil that I want, to, I want to finish this message on, but let's just go through the first two. The first is the hard path soil. Verse five, a sower went out to sow his seed and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot and the birds of the air devoured it. Okay, so this is talking about unbelievers. Okay, these are people that can't even receive uh, the message into their hearts. It just sits on top and then the devil is the birds and they just want to pick the, the truth off. Okay, and uh, we all know people like this. You know, stuff that makes sense to you, they can't, they can't hear it. You know, I preached a message just before Christmas on, on, on the resurrection, and we looked at the different proofs for Jesus and all sorts of stuff, and the resurrection is so amazing, and we all sit in here in a message like that, and we go at the end of it, oh, I just, I feel so much faith, like, yes, Jesus is real, and he's God, and he rose from the dead, it's amazing. You can go and tell, you know, a friend of yours or a family member who's far from God and doesn't believe, you tell them those same reasons, and there's such good reasons, but those reasons to them don't make any difference. And the reason is because receiving truth isn't just about how good the truth is. It's about can the heart receive it. And so it's a hard path. The seeds can't go in. It doesn't matter. You give them the best reasons. How could something come from nothing? How could life come from non-life? How could all these people think they saw Jesus alive after his death? But people who won't hear the gospel, their hearts are hard. They actually can't. It doesn't make sense to them. Because again, it's not about the truth. It's about the heart. Right? Now, I should just say this. When Jesus tells this parable, you just go, oh, shoot. You know, I, I've got people in my life that I love, and they're obviously hard past soil. The point of this parable is not that you're one kind of soil for your whole life. It's not that that person is doomed to always be a hard path. Absolutely not. Our prayer is, Holy Spirit, till up that soil so that the seed can go in and so that they can receive you and that they can understand. That's our prayer. But we realize that it's a hard thing. We've got to pray for their hearts to be able to understand the gospel. Second kind of soil is the rocky soil. Jesus says this, and some fell in the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And then he explains that this is verse 13, and the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while, and in the time of testing, they fall away. Okay? So Jesus says, here's another kind of soil, another kind of heart you'll see. These people actually give their lives to Christ. They have a, they have a, a born-again experience. They share their testimonies. It's exciting. They often... And I've known people like this, but I've seen a bunch of people come into this church over the years exactly like this. Then maybe they give up some aspect of their old life, their wildness and their partying and some of those things. And you think, this is an amazing testimony, but everybody's excited. But somewhere they were willing to give up certain things, but somewhere deep inside what you can't see is there were certain parts of their life they never wanted to give up and, and they, they themselves probably didn't even see it at the time. And later on in their life, they just kind of drift away, drift away, drift away, and then they're away from God. And I often see Christians, they get disillusioned about that. Oh, is this even real? How can all these people have these amazing testimonies and then walk away? They get disillusioned. Don't be disillusioned by that. Jesus said, these are the kinds of hearts that are out there. We're always going to see this kind of thing. There's always going to be hard path hearts. There's always going to be rocky soil hearts. Real genuine conversion, but in the end, there was no staying power, and eventually they went off the path and they fell away. Now again, we don't feel fatalistic about that. When we know people like this, we don't go, oh shoot, they're rocky soil. That's it for them. We pray, Holy Spirit, till up that soil, till up those rocks, make the roots go down deeper. We want to see this be good soil. We pray for their hearts. We pray for them to know Jesus. Now we get to the third soil, and this is where I want to finish, finish this message. The third kind is the thorny soil. Verse 7, And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And Jesus explains what this means in verse 14, And as for what fell among the thorns... They are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares 
and riches and pleasures of life and their fruit does not mature. Now I want you to notice something different of these people compared to the hard path people and the rocky soil people. These, are, these people didn't fall away. It says their fruit does not mature, but it's not like they, they lost all their fruit. It's not like they withered and died. These are, actually, these are Christians. These are regular, ordinary, everyday Christians. And the reason I want to finish the message here is I think all of us at some stages of our life are on some place of the continuum uh, in this soil. That's why I want to spend a little time here because all of us at some point in our life, and if not now, at some place on the continuum, either severe or less severe, thorns and weeds in the thorny, weedy soil are something that all of us deal with. These are regular, ordinary, everyday Christians, but they don't bear fruit, and they don't hear from God much. And why is that? Now, again, I want to, let's talk about two different kinds of Christians. Isn't it true that there's what we will call, I'll call, uh, and I've talked about this before, but there's what I'll call uh, fresh Christians. When I talk about fresh Christians, what I mean is these are people, any given week, any given week, you can talk to one of these people, and they're always fresh in their walk with God. You say, what's God doing in your life? They can tell you something from the last week. This is what the Lord's speaking in my life. This is something I'm getting out of the word. This is something God's convicting me of. This is something I'm praying about. If you talk, and then you talk to them the next week, they have something else. From week to week, they're always fresh in their relationship with Jesus. You, you ever known someone like that? It's just fresh, okay? But isn't it true, though, for many of us, there's stages and periods in our lives where we're more like the stale Christian. Isn't that true? So the fresh Christian, you could talk to him next week. Oh, this is something God's doing. He's really convicting me. He's working on me in this. Something he's doing in their life. Something fresh in their, they've been journaling, they've been learning, they've been reading, they've been meditating. Then there's a stale Christian. They believe in Jesus. They haven't lost their salvation. God loves them, absolutely. They go to church every week. Maybe they go to cell. They do, they do some of these church things. The fact of the matter is you talk to them, what's God really doing in your life? And they'd be hard-pressed. You know, like a month ago, there was a message. I got some out of that. Or you know, there was a couple of persons ago I had this kind of experience with God or was set free a year ago. They've got those things. They're, they're, they still believe in Jesus. There's no question. And God's not mad at them. And they're not on their way to judgment, nothing like that. But the fact of the matter is, it just isn't fresh. And why isn't it fresh? Well, Jesus gives it to us there. Okay, and he talks about the cares and well, he cares and riches and pleasures. I'll just talk about two: the freshness, that fruit, that joy, that freshness of the Holy Spirit, that that connection with Jesus. And isn't it true? I mean, if you've actually given your life to Christ, at some point in your life, you've experienced this. How many of you have ever experienced? There's those times in life. Maybe you were going through a hard time. You're going through a hard time, maybe. Because this often, hard times often motivate us to press after Jesus. Isn't it true? So you're going through a hard time. And while you're in that hard time, isn't it true? Like you wake up in the morning and you're just desperate for God and you're praying. You go to work and while you're on your way to work, you're just crying out to him. You're praying when you're at, on your lunch break, you're, you're praying to him. You're just, you're desperate for him. And isn't it crazy how it works that you might even have, it might be a real hard time, but because you're so desperate for him, you can just feel him so close. And there's this like joy on the inside. Isn't that true? Or maybe you said yes to Jesus about something that was really hard for you and there was a period of time where you were just so full of the joy of the Lord. And there was that freshness. You were, you were walking with him. You could sense him close to you. It was amazing, okay? But now it's not there and you go through these periods of time where it's just stale. Well, Jesus tells us why they're stale. It's because cares and riches and pleasures, not, I'm not talking about bad things. You're not even talking about sin. That's a whole other thing that'll choke things up. But cares and riches and pleasures have just grown over and just crowded out 
that priority, that when you had that joy in the Lord, it was because Jesus was your priority. It's not that you spent all day in prayer, but throughout the day, whatever you were doing, whether you were, you know, spending time with friends or whether you were at work or whether you were with family or whether you were home alone at night, it's not that you were praying all the time, but you were, Jesus was your priority. Your thoughts often went back to him. And now the cares, on the negative side, the cares, the worries, the worries about bills and finances and this and that, all the different things you worry about has just turned your life into a grind. Isn't it true? Many of us, some of us feel like life is just a grind and I'm just surviving and there's not lots of even room in your heart to think lots about Jesus. It's just, there's just a grind in the worries of life that are just choking out that joy in Jesus. Or it's the pleasures. It's all the, it's all the fun stuff. It's all the good stuff. None of them bad and Jesus enjoys that we enjoy some of these things. And, and whether it be media and, and movies or sports and hobbies and all these different things we have, but eventually our lives just get so full and kids and school and da, 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 and it fills up, fills up, fills up, fills up, fills up, fills up. And all of a sudden, you never stop believing in Jesus. You still believe in him. You're on your way to heaven. You, you, you love him, but your walk with Jesus has become just another thing. It's not the priority. Jesus isn't the priority. It's not like if anybody looked at your life and they would look at your thought life. You know what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6? Matthew 6, wonderful passage. He says, wherever your treasure is, there your heart and thoughts will also be. And you might have slotted in your half an hour or 45 minutes with God every day, your devos. And, uh, but you realize it's not a legal, a relationship with God isn't just about, boom, if I do this, then everything's good. What are you doing with the other 23 hours? Your mind is in total other things all the rest of your life. And that's why you don't have a joy anymore. The cares and the pleasure choked it out, so now your relationship with Jesus is just another thing. The moment your relationship with Jesus becomes just another thing and not the number one thing, you will lose your joy and your freshness in the Spirit. You'll lose your joy and your freshness in the Spirit. Now again, this is, by the way, this is not about feeling guilty. I'm going to read you a pass it in just a moment. This is not about feeling guilty. Uh, those of you who have gardens, uh, and, and my wife and I always have a garden in the backyard. I don't know why we make that mistake every year, but um, so anyway, so you have a, if you have a garden in your backyard, um, you know a garden will just get weeds. It just does. Like, isn't that true? A garden would, and you don't go out there and get mad. You're not, you're not disillusioned and upset every year when weeds show up in your garden. It's not like you go out there and kick the garden. You bad garden. I don't like you, you stupid garden. I can't believe you're having weeds again. You know if you have a garden, weeds is just going to come. So part of your job is you've got to go out there regularly and you've got to weed it. You've got to make a decision. It takes a little bit of work, but you've got to go into that garden. You've got to pull some weeds. It's just what you have to do. You know what you have to do. Did you know the same is true with your soul? If you just leave your soul, you got saved somewhere. You had the joy of the Lord. You went through a tough time somewhere. You had this tremendous joy in the Lord and you were just seeking him. And you thought that would just stay automatically for the rest of your life. But it's just like a garden in your backyard. If you just leave the garden of your soul to itself, it will always crowd out with weeds. And the point isn't that God's mad at you. He's going, oh, you ridiculous, evil, terrible person, or that you should just feel bad. I'm so bad. The point is you got to garden your soul regularly. You, you have to go in there and make choices and say, I'm going to put a box around this thing, this, you know, this social media thing. It's just every evening and on my phone, I just, I can't stop going there. My thoughts never go to the Lord or 
to what he's doing in my life or praying for someone else. My thoughts are constantly on, I just got to get the next fix of this. Or maybe your mind is constantly in sports or in some hobby or on exercise, whatever it is, your mind constantly goes somewhere. Wherever your treasure is, there your heart and thoughts will also be. At some point, you've got to go into the garden of your soul and saying, these weeds, it might not be sin at all, but these weeds are choking out my joy in the Lord. So I got to put a box around this. I got to restrict it. You know, I, I can't just be on social media whenever I want because I just go there seven days a week all the time. So maybe I put a box around it once a week for X amount of time. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put a box around this and this will not be allowed. I actually have to make a choice. This will not be allowed to choke out my joy in the Lord. Sports. I, I can't just let myself come home and whenever there's a good game on and just watch it every night of the week, maybe I've got to put it down to one day a week or two days a week or at this time, I'm, I'm not going to look up all this news because I can't let this choke out my priority with the Lord, which is when I'm going to have my joy in the Lord. Look what David says in Psalm 16. I remember this is one of the chapters I was memorizing. I memorized last year. And he just says this in verse 8, I've set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Now I want you to notice that word set. This didn't just happen. Like you look at that person who's always fresh in the Holy Spirit. And sometimes we just feel, as stale Christians, sometimes we just feel helpless. I'll I'll just always be stale. I don't know how that person gets to be like that. You know why they're fresh and you're stale? They have made certain choices to garden their soul in a certain way. And you also can make choices. There's hope for you and the Holy Spirit will help you. You can make choices to garden, to go into the garden and weed that thing regularly and make sure that Jesus is your number one priority. I have set the Lord always before me. I have made choices. that I'm, I'm going to have my treasure in Jesus. Now, if you want to know the benefit... Because maybe you're looking at that and going, well, it's kind of a neat idea, but what's my motivation? I'll show you the motivation. This is why I love this passage. Look what it says next. Okay? Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. And you know that you were wired for Jesus. You were wired for Jesus. We make all these other choices because we think in our subconscious that going to hobbies and sports and social media, it gives us this quick little fix. It's so easy to do. It's so addictive. And we think that's where we're going to find the joy. But in the end, you know, do you get off of social media or do you finish a game and do you go, my heart, unless your team won, in which case you have, you know, a flitting joy. But, uh, um, but do you ever go, you know, my heart is, is glad and my whole being rejoices. There's this fullness. You don't do that because your body was only made to get that from Jesus. But you can only get that when you make choices to make him the number one treasure of your life. And it doesn't mean you can't do those other things. It means you restrict them so they don't crowd out what really matters. So they don't crowd out what really matters. Now, oftentimes it's, you know, sometimes it's hard decisions. Sometimes it's just an accumulation of small choices that are hard. You know, you, I mean, how many dozens of times, and I'm going I'm to bring this to a close, but how many dozens of times have I heard this? from people after a, after a prayer summit, for example. You know, I wonder how many of us, and this is for me too, every, every time before sale or before prayer summit, how many of us feel like, you know what, I would rather just I'm, just, I'm just beat. I'd rather just put in a movie and watch a movie tonight. You know, isn't that true that most of us feel that way before any time you want to go to a prayer summit or sale? Isn't that true? Okay? Now, sometimes you give in, and it's not a sin, and God doesn't go, you just lost your salvation, you bad person. No, you didn't lose your salvation. But how many of you, after staying home and relaxing, at the end of it, you go, oh, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. That's not what you feel. 
Your brain is numb. You get up, you go to bed. But if you actually make the hard choice, see, it's not the easy choices aren't always the ones that give us joy. They're easy, but they're not joy-filled. How many dozens of times have I heard, and how many times have I been true in my own life? You drag yourself out of bed, it's freezing cold outside, you come to the summit or you go to cell, whatever it is, and you spend those couple hours in fellowship, praying with others and worshiping Jesus and listening to him. And is it true that at the end, I often, I hear this pretty much every time, people go, I'm so glad I came tonight. And often they say, I wasn't wanting to come, but I'm so glad I came tonight. My heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. Why? I have set the Lord always before me. It's minus 30 outside, I'm still gonna get dressed, I'm gonna put the Lord first right? I've set the Lord always before me. Now, what better time to do this than prayer and fasting month? Amen? We make a decision to restrict. I've actually been thanking God. This is one of the first times in my life. I just found myself spontaneously doing it on the walk home from church the other day, and it was like minus 30. I had my ski pants on, and, and, I, and I was still freezing. But I, I said to the Lord, I said, Lord, I just want to thank you for this brutally cold weather. It's pitch dark out here, and it's five o'clock. I said, there's nothing else I can do tonight but sit at home and read a bit of my Bible and be with the kids. Like, this is actually, it's amazing. I can't be over busy with the yard work and stuff. I actually have a chance now in prayer and fasting month to spend more time thinking about Jesus. Aren't you glad for that? Amen. <laughs> Thank you, Walter. You're not convinced yet. You've got to get into this a little bit. It's prayer and fasting month. When we succeed in making God the number one priority in our lives, joy is the inevitable result. So you put a box around some stuff, okay? And then you put in some good stuff. And we'll do this for a month. And I want you to, I want you to pull out. We got cards there. I want each of you to take, take one home. Now, some of you did this at the person already, so that's good. But take one anyway. There's enough for, for, one, for everybody for every service. And it's got a bunch of stuff on there. Um, but this is a time to do some weeding. This is a month to do some weeding. It's time for us to think, you know what? I spend too much time on this. I spend too much time on that. I'm going to put a box around it, okay? I'm going to put a box around this. I'm going to put a limit on this. I'm going to budget this. And then you don't, it's not just that you budget out the bad stuff. Now you put in some good stuff. Say, yeah, I have a time with the Lord in the morning, but you know what's amazing? Even if you give God 15 or 20 minutes or something in the evening, one more time before you go to bed or in the evening with the kids. Sometimes what we'll do often on Monday nights, we'll just sit with the kids. I don't want to plan another devotion time, but we'll just sit with the kids. They have their Bibles, I have my Bible. We'll put on maybe some worship music and we'll just sit quietly there and journal and meditate as a family, but I'm not leading anything. And we'll just do that for 20 or 25 minutes. And it doesn't even matter to me what they're all getting out of it. Just being quiet together as a family, it's amazing what that stirs in the heart. So you budget in some good stuff. You budget, I'm going to be thankful before I go to bed. I'm going to do some journaling, just 15 or 20 minutes. I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to restrict some of this other stuff, some of the thorns and weeds. I'm going to budget in some of this other stuff. Because when you get rid of the weeds, you're going to have fruit. You know, it says there, Luke chapter 8, verse 8. And some fell into the good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. If you get rid of the weeds, the fruit of the Spirit and joy and Jesus working in your life is inevitable. It will happen. But it's up to us to make some choices and get rid of some weeds. So while you're thinking about that too, though, I want to give you one last and then, and then we'll finish this. But the atomic bomb of weeding is a food fast, okay? Yeah, you do a little budgeting here. You do a little of this. You do a little of that. But if you want to know the atomic bomb of I just want to press into Jesus is do a food fast, okay? Um, there's something about you do a food fast. You take a couple of days. You take two or three or four or five days or a week or whatever, and you just, you don't have food and you don't exercise and you take all that extra time at lunch 
and in the morning and in the evening, and you just focus on Jesus. And yes, your physical body is hungry, but this is the atomic bomb of weeding. You're just getting rid of the weeds, and you're saying, I'm gonna make Jesus, I'm gonna take. And you know, we have such busy lives. We have a whole year where it's just nothing but nonstop stimulation and getting texts and this and that. It's always, what an opportunity in January to take some moments and clear it all out radically. So I'm gonna take a few days. I'm gonna fast, I'm gonna seek your face, and uh, I'm gonna do some weeding. So here's a couple of things. Just to dumb this down, I'm going to put some stuff up on the PowerPoint. It's kind of a challenge. And this is stuff that's on your cards. And I'd encourage you to join us. If you've never done a food fast before, and some of you are scared to death of the thought of doing it, uh, join us on a, th- a three-day food fast. I'm giving you a, a week's notice. Not this week. I mean, I'm going to do some other fasting throughout the month, but I want to do one together as a church. There's some of doing it together. It's just encouraging, you know, that even when you're feeling like you want to give in, then you know that there's a bunch of other people doing it with you and suffering with you, and it just makes it just makes it better. But next week, Tuesday to Thursday, uh, I'm going to break the fat, my fast on Thursday night supper on the 18th. But Tuesday to Thursday, uh, if you want to join us, let's do a three-day food fast. And can I encourage you something? When you do a fast, this is, this is really important. When you do a fast, uh, do you know what happens when you stop eating food, but you don't schedule extra time for prayer? You know what that's called? A diet. That's not a fast, Okay. If you, if you, because I know people sometimes do this, okay, I'm just going to stop eating because that's what we're doing at church is we're doing this fast, and then you don't schedule any extra time to pray. That's not a fast, that's a diet, okay? And that's why you're miserable. Diets always make people miserable. Maybe write that down in your journal, okay? <laughs> they make people miserable because you're just hungry, but you're not getting anything else in. Now, what I'm talking about here is not just don't, you know, stop eating. What I'm talking about is do a food fast for three days, but have extra time for prayer because the point of the fast is to make Jesus number one so you can know the joy that David talked about in Psalm 16. I've set the Lord always before me because of that. My heart is glad and my whole being rejoices and see what God is going to do in your life when you just atomic bomb a bunch of those weeds in your life and say, I'm going to take a few days here and I'm going to just seek your face because that's what you were made to do. So I encourage you to do that and, and do some other ones too. That's, that's not the only fast you can do. I mean, it's, we've got a whole month to focus on God. I would encourage you to do uh, several fasts, but, but we can do that one together. And, and, uh, and for those of you who want, we'll have some kind of a sign-up this week uh, online, and I'll write, some, I'll write devotionals during that fast and some encouragements, and you can feel like we're doing this together. I did that several years ago. It was a lot of fun. The other thing I would encourage you to think about is a media fast of some kind this month. So Maybe you restrict, I'm not going to do any media, you know, Monday through Saturday or whatever it is or something like that or the whole thing, however you want to do it. And, uh, and then the last thing is, again, put in some extra Bible prayer and Bible time and reading and journaling this month and see if the Bible isn't true when it says put Jesus first and your heart is going to be glad and, your heart, and it's going to rejoice. So I'm going to give you a time. If you would just bow your heads with me and close your eyes, you keep those cards with you. And even right now, the Holy Spirit may want to speak to some of you and it's going to give you some ideas. Lord, we just want to be a church that pleases you in 2018. More than that, Jesus, I want us to be a church that is full of joy. Not a fake joy, but that real joy that comes from putting you first. And what an opportunity, what a blessing that we have a month in January. We are so busy all year long. There's so much stuff going on. What a blessing to have this month. It's cold, it's dark, and it's this opportunity for us to put aside some things, to do some days of food fasting, to, to cut back on some other things, to spend more time seeking you. What a start to the year. Holy Spirit, would you empower us? There's people sitting here right now and you're telling them, you're nudging them and you're telling them, not because you're mad, 
not to make them feel guilty, but you're nudging them. If you'll fast from this, you're gonna experience more joy. If you fast from that, if you restrict that, you're gonna experience more joy and more freedom than you ever imagined before, and you're gonna experience that Jesus really is better than those things. I pray that you would give people ideas even right now while I'm praying. Give them ideas what it is, different kinds of fasts. So you would encourage people who are afraid to try a food fast for the first time, Jesus. I thank you for what you're gonna do. And I praise you in advance for the answers to prayer and the guidance you're gonna give us. In your precious, powerful, wonderful name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.